Thank you for joining. And thanks for being so patient with my rescheduling mishaps. This has been, I think you hold the record. Oh, no or, problem. Or rather, I hold the record in scheduling with you in terms of <laughs> change time. But I'm, I'm glad we finally made this work. Um, and here we are. Cool. Um, and, you know, like with most of my guests, um, I try to do a deep dive and obviously understand what you've been reading and writing recently. And yeah. you might have noticed a slightly snarky uh uh, show description in which I called you the most indecipherable writer because your writing credits go from Cut. like the most lefty stuff to the most indie stuff to the most mainstream stuff. And so I, I can't pin you down, which of course is like a, a capital sin in our, in our polarized environment. So maybe I'll just shut up and let, and let you define yourself to the audience. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I began kind of writing in journalism probably, honestly, I think the first thing I ever had really published was in high school. <laughs> Uh, I was a uh, high school senior and I entered the nation magazines high school essay contest. Uh, and they picked me as a finalist, which means that they published my essay, um, at least online. I don't remember if they published in the print edition. And by the way, they've never paid me my prize money for that. Yeah. Even after I confronted them at like a journalism conference I went to and I was like, Hey guys, you never paid me. They're like, Oh, we'll, we'll go back to the office on Monday and make sure you're paid. I never got paid. Um, it was funny, yeah, that I never got my money for that. Uh, that was my early lesson in, in you know, life, uh, I guess, freelancing or, or submitting things, and you really have to fight to get paid sometimes. Uh, but that was in high school. And then, you know, when I went to college, I think I started writing in the, we had a student paper at University of Georgia. It was called The Red and Black. Uh, that was kind of the official paper of the, the, new, of the uh, university. I also had a, a student magazine that I started. Um, and basically, I think it was mostly from a progressive perspective, I mean. Uh, I don't know if I was always explicitly trying to be left of center, but I think a lot of the topics I wrote about were were kind of of that my lieu. That was kind of my direction and my position. And I think uh, I, I went straight from that out of college in 2009 and graduated work for the Center for American Progress, um, which was this think tank in D.C. It's not officially partisan, but it's very close to the Democratic Party. It staffed a lot of the Obama administration. John Podesta founded it, so on and so forth. And I worked at Think Progress, which was the weblog and also the newsletter, which was called the Progress Report. Basically, it was, again, it was left of center type reporting and, and blogging and so on and so forth. Um, and I think I kind of stayed in that progressive space for a number of years. And I worked for a progressive political action committee where I did like fundraising uh, for like Elizabeth Warren and Alan Grayson. I think we did some for Bernie Sanders. Uh, I did some for a lot of left of center people. Um, and, you know, I skipped around a bit, worked for different publications. Uh, I worked at The Intercept for three years. And I think that was up until 2018. And I think my my experience there kind of shifted me into the space I think you're talking about right now, which is that, you know, when I joined The Intercept, I thought it was basically a hard-hitting investigative type reporting outlet publication to kind of tackle the establishment, uh, institutions, be adversarial. And I think to a large extent, it, it was that. And, it, and even today, it continues to be that to, to a large extent. But I think it started to more and more pick a side and like explicitly be like, you know, more partisan or politically branded, uh, particularly when President Trump came into office. I think they almost positioned themselves as like an opposition to President Trump. And even as someone who had come from sort of a partisan and political background, you know, I both did um, advocacy journalism on, on the political left and I, did, I worked in campaigns, I still felt a little bit uncomfortable with that shift because I felt like it was narrowing what I could write about. And, it, you know, I was getting, there was more and more things that I would pitch and they'd be like, Oh, that's not really in our, it's not really the way we see things. And uh, people would drag their feet and, you know, it, it felt kind of uncomfortable for me. So after three years there, 
uh, I left. And what I did is I took a fellowship at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center. And it was interesting. The fellowship was funded through an external party. So it was like an 18-month fellowship. Basically, my task was to write a series of articles and help compile a playbook, um, basically to lay out a bunch of skills to deal with social and political polarization, right? Uh, the funder who had funded that fellowship, he's very, very interested in this. And he funds a, a wide gamut of like depolarization type groups across the U.S. And it was a really interesting experience for me because I really got to step completely outside the partisan mode for a second and just really like think about like what's happening in the United States. Why is it that people have sorted themselves so intensely in different political partisan tribes. Uh, why is it having all kinds of deleterious effects on our society, including like we have shorter Thanksgiving dinners, apparently, in like districts where there's like competitive elections or, or cross, cross partisan uh, people, families, you actually saw shorter Thanksgiving dinners. That's one of the studies that I, I, I uh, reported on. Um, so, you know, I spent 18 months just writing articles for the Greater Good Science Center, compiling this playbook of skills that we handed out to community organizations and civil, civil society folks, basically skills that people can use in their interpersonal lives to tackle polarization. And I think it was a really good experience because it kind of unhooked me a little bit from just the, this narrow kind of partisan progressive space. And I think during that time, I also started branching out in my freelance writing. You know, I started writing pieces, not only for left-leaning publications, uh, as I continue to do, but also I started writing occasionally. I would write a piece for Quillette. I'd write one for the National Review. I'd write for the American conservatives sometimes. Um, and I, what I learned was that when I saw a good story, sometimes that story maybe fits more into the worldview of the left. Sometimes it fits maybe more into a worldview of the right. Um, but I actually felt kind of liberated to do those stories that if I previously was only working at left-leaning publications full-time as a staff writer, I had the expectation basically to promote that worldview, right? And it wasn't that the stories that wrote at those places were necessarily like bad stories, but I think that they were only kind of from one direction, right? And I think over the past few years, probably past three or four years, I think I've had the opportunity to step out of that a little bit and really come to see you know, the world from a few different perspectives and, and really, I think, um, grow as a journalist, right? And, and being able to, to tackle these things from more, from more than one vantage point. And I think that's, that's really good. In many ways, it's made me respect, I think, old school journalism a lot more because I really... You know, I kind of entered the field as more of an advocacy journalist, right? You know, more, more in the activist mold. But now I actually, I kind of see the value of things like nuance a lot more than I used to. I think, I think, I think I value that value much more. So, so, but it's it's fascinating that you've gone the full gamut from the Intercept, which is definitely left of center, and it's almost like you're you're like Greenwald, and that you left it behind, and then you become something else, and then you went all the way to the other side to American Conservative, which is very much to the right, even even more to the right than I'd say the National Review. Does that mean that can you go back to like a mainstream publication or is this like is this like when you travel to the Middle East and like you have to go through a laugh <laughs> because if like the Arab country seeing an Israeli stamp on your passport, they won't let you in. And so that has to be the last stop. Or how does how does that work? Oh, it's, that's a funny question. Um, yeah, actually, there are a few countries where now like the UAE, right? And few places where you can get away with these really uh stamp now but yeah i think that um my aspiration is not to be pigeonholed again right like i don't want to i was very much pigeonholed as a left of center guy and left of center journalist uh doing everything i was doing i remember one time i like had a, a back and forth with the saudi ambassador and he would like basically called me an activist this was when i was looking at the intercept like i don't want that to happen again i really do want to have the flexibility to be able to tell stories wherever i see them from whatever vantage point or angle so yeah i do you know i had i think um uh, maybe two or three months ago i published a piece in the atlantic right 
And I think that was pretty important that I, I did that because like I view the Atlantic as sort of in that kind of center left mainstream space or in some ways. And I, I don't, you know, I don't want it to be that I would be seen as like, okay, he published something in the American conservative or national review. And therefore, you know, he, he's, he's now he's a conservative. And it's funny because I do see people sometimes who've obviously just read only like one thing I've ever written. Right. Who will just respond to me like, Oh, you Republicans X, Y, and Z. And I just think that's the most comical thing in the world is someone reads one article of me and then they pigeonhole me again from that perspective. Cause you know, if they happen to read another article that I wrote in current affairs, a Jacobin or something, they're going to say, Oh, that's just a, that's a real Marxist socialist far left guy. Right. Uh, which happened to me for most of my career, for most of my career, those who were the kind of comments I was getting more recently over the past couple of years, I've been getting comments from the other direction occasionally, um, which is amusing to me because I, you know, I know the truth of it is that I'm not actually, I'm actually actively trying not to be in that direction or that way. Um, I just um, was in Austin, Texas, and I was covering a uh, there's a referendum that's going to be that's going to take place there uh, in the first week of November. The referendum is about police staffing. Basically, it would if the referendum passes, they would, they would shift a lot of money to the police department to hire more uh, officers. because They've had a lot of uh, people who left and the city council did some defunding for a while that that's you know, slowly being rolled back. Um, and, and I made a point, I made a serious point of interviewing people on both sides. In fact, I probably interviewed more people who were against the referendum than for the referendum. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that's a piece that I think, you know, I'm putting on my reporter hat and I'm saying I really want to explain to the country what this debate looks like, because I think this debate will be coming to many different communities across the United States. And it has been. Um, and it, it was really, really important to me. Right. Even if I do have a point of view, like if I really thought about it, I probably think about which way I would vote on the referendum. But my main objective there is to really put people in the shoes of the folks in Austin who are having to make this decision, right? Um, so yeah, I, I I appreciate your question. It's something I do want to avoid in the future. I don't want to get I don't want to get pigeonholed again because I just don't think there I I don't think that uh, all the good stories are on one side of the political spectrum, right? I don't think all the good experiences in life or all the good uh, like all the interesting thoughts or ideas are on one side of the spectrum, right? So I don't I don't want to get uh, put in that place again. Well, Zed, I, I've, oft, I've often joked that, you know, frankly, the check marks on Twitter should come just in blue and red varieties. So you can just like look at their Twitter profile and just <laughs> know which pigeonhole they're in. And I guess maybe in your case, it could be like half red, half blue, right? It would be like one of those rare check marks. <laughs> but, that would be funny. Yeah. But so the story you're referring to is your most recent Atlantic one, which I read actually before this. And, it, and again, you, you cited the importance of actually publishing it in the Atlantic because in some sense, the tenor of the pieces I read it was kind of the either the failure or lack of appeal of progressive politics, even in blue cities, right? Mm. And um, it, it seems like that's something you need to say in a, in a, in a leftist publication, <laughs> saying it in the right, yeah, go anywhere. Exactly, exactly. I think that they're, so it's really funny. I think that's one thing I don't like about Twitter is that I have kind of a diverse audience of people, right? Like I, it's funny because I want a diverse audience. I should be able to speak to the widest group of people possible. But sometimes I will say something that's very seriously only intended at one side of the spectrum. Like I'm arguing to conservatives about markets or I'm arguing to liberals about policing or something. And someone who's on the other side of who I'm trying to address will look at that and be like, why are you giving so much ground to that side? You know, you're just like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I'm trying to persuade them. Like I, you have to say things in a certain way to persuade people. Right. So like, the way I wrote that article in The Atlantic, I think, was really to speak to progressives about some of these criminal justice issues and use the series of interviews that I did with various people at different levels of governance and politics 
to just, to just show them what's happening in these cities and show them the political dynamics, how those are changing, the social dynamic, what's actually happening in the ground in terms of people being hurt and killed. Um, you know, I wrote that article for that audience, right? So I'm going to write it differently than if I wrote that same article for, let's say, the National Review or for like Daily Wire or something like that, right? Like I had a very specific intention in terms of what I was doing. But it is funny on Twitter. Sometimes I'm I'm like arguing with someone on the right and then someone on the left will like quote tweet it or something and be like, oh, you know, he's just an idiot being taken advantage of by these gullible, by these people. He's so gullible. And I'm just like, no, like this is how he persuades them. Like I worked campaigns before. Like you don't go up to someone and say, oh, you're an idiot or something, right? You like, you figure out what interests them. You figure out where they're coming from and then you work backwards from there. And so I do that a lot publicly. And I think sometimes people don't get it. Like they don't understand what I'm doing. They think that I'm just like, shilling for a side or like i'm just oblivious to, to their worldview but no it's like actually in political persuasion it's very important to do that sometimes and yeah i think that is that is something when you're talking to a mass audience sometimes people don't quite entirely get that you're doing that right well i mean but that that's assuming that persuasion actually even exists right that the swing vote actually exists and that even in our in our current political culture the the thought that you'd actually convince one of the the deplorables or vice versa doesn't mm-hmm. seem to quite be in the picture, but but I mean it it does, but it's something that needs to happen, right? Like one thing I noticed in the last election, right, was the the flip to the to the right on a lot of border regions in Texas or mm-hmm. in Miami. Right? Like the Hispanic vote, for example, is going a little bit more conservative than you know the sort of conventional wisdom sort of assumed, and so clearly there is a real swing yeah. vote. And given the fact that every election now is like fifty, you know, fifty point one percent versus forty nine point nine, right? Like uh, I remember, like what in the in the midst of time. I think the first election that I ever saw that I sort of remembered it was the 1984 election between Walter Mondale and Reagan, in which, you know, it was probably the last like real landslide presidential election we had that was like 49 states went for Reagan <laughs> and one went for, um, for Mondale. But that, but since then it's basically been kind of a white knuckle dice roll every, every election to some degree or another. Um, yeah. I mean, I think when, I think that the issue of like persuasion, like, uh, it's funny. That's one of the publications I write for. It's called Persuasion. It's run by uh, Yasha Monk, Monk oh, right. who's a cool guy. Yep. Um, I think the thing about persuasion, people have to understand and realize is it takes a very long, it usually t- happens over a period of time, right? Like people definitely change their minds, but it, it would be very unusual to like have a conversation with someone and then you like walk away and they have changed their minds. Like even over like an election cycle, right? Uh, even when I, like if you're canvassing people on a field team or something, you might knock, you might, uh, write down on your on your sheet or on the app if people use apps now uh, that this person is like leaning in a certain direction and maybe over the course of four or five weeks they may change their lean right uh, but it'd be yeah it would be extremely unusual just to like talk to someone or just like throw an argument at them and then they're like going to change their mind uh, a lot of people I think they change their mind over a, a vast period of time which I know you have as well I, I think I, I find that very interesting from the outside reading some of your writing about some of your your evolving thinking <laughs> I don't know how much I've changed, yeah. but yeah, maybe I have. Um, uh, I mean, people ask me that all the time. They ask me if I have changed my points of view. Um, and I, I, I genuinely don't think I've changed my points of view that much over the years, but I, I feel like things have changed around me. So that the way I approach them is maybe a little bit different. I don't know if maybe, maybe you would relate to that at all. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I often say that, like, I, I haven't moved to the right. I just stayed still and the whole world moved to the left. Mm. But, you know, that's that's a little bit of a... When, I was, when I was at the Center for American Progress working under Podesta, I can say with genuine confidence, I was the most left-wing person in the entire building. Several hundred staffers, 
you know, Democratic staffers, people who worked in campaigns and consultants. I was the most left-wing person in that entire building. Now, if I went to the same place, I'd probably be like in the middle or something or like maybe a little bit right-leaning or something. And I don't think, outside of a few issues, like maybe like, I don't know, I go back and forth on like guns and stuff like that, thinking about it. And a few, uh, there's a few things here and there. Maybe I've changed a little bit. I don't, I really don't think I've changed that much though. But, but the fact that everyone else is changing does get back to my point that people do tend to change over time. Um, it just it just can be hard to predict when and kind of how they would change. Okay, well, okay, so let's let's attack some of these issues, um, you know, one after the other, because it does say Zaid Jelani explains American politics. So let's let's explain some American politics, or or maybe actually, you know, you just tweeted this thing about the the piece um, that came out in the New York Times. I can't recall the writer's name, unfortunately, but it's basically about this emergence of the new right, right, and whether mm. it exists or not. Do you, do you want to take that on? Because I think it's kind of a juicy topic that we're going to yeah. Yeah, totally. And I've written a couple pieces about this. I've written actually two cover stories for the Washington Examiner about the populist right, sort of the way that they're engaging on issues like um, big tech, on issues like monopolies and economic policy. And I think so. I think two things are true at the same time, because this is another issue where, like, if I write a nuanced piece about the right, a lot of people on the left will attack me like, oh, he's just totally being taken in. He's gullible. He, he, they're all snakes. He doesn't get it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but here's the thing, like there is a very real movement of people on the right who ha- are looking at sort of the neoliberal libertarian kind of establishment that is very powerful in D.C. It's very much uh, in favor of, you know, private capital markets, so on and so forth. It doesn't support a whole lot of government intervention, at least it, on behalf of workers and labor. Uh, I think that there is a very real group of people on the right, both intellectuals uh, people in think tanks, certain writers and pundits, I even put Tucker Carlson into this group, who are seriously rethinking that. They've looked at it and they've thought a lot of this has just really failed. Like we, a lot of the people have changed their minds. Like there are folks, like uh, interesting folks, like Marco Rubio and Mike Lee, who are definitely more on the on the libertarian side about five six years ago, who I think uh, have hired up staff who are very interested in genuinely looking at this and thinking, is there a different way we can do this? Because I think they've seen a lot of failures politically and they've seen a lot of failures on the substance in terms of what's happening to their constituents. Uh, it's, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people like off the record as well and getting, just getting to know people who are staff at various organizations and various politicians. And my sense is that they, they're generally trying to do this. But at the same time, the second point I want to, I want to bring up is that it should, it, their power or their influence shouldn't be exaggerated. Uh, within the wider Republican Party and conservative coalition, there's still a minority faction. And I would say that like the Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate majority le- or minority leader, or Kevin McCarthy's of the world, they don't take them entirely seriously just yet. They think they're well in control. They don't, they're not super fearful that like Ken Buck, uh, who's the ranking uh, guy on judiciary in the House, who was, who was working very closely with Democrats, who wants to break up a lot of the big tech companies. I don't think they're super worried that Ken Buck is going to be writing GOP policy anytime soon, even though he is, at this point, a fairly senior and influential Republican who wants to do that stuff. And I don't think they're super worried that, like, Josh Hawley will be writing Senate Republican policy. But at the same time, it's extremely interesting to me as someone who spent years, you know, I grew up in the Deep South in Georgia, which has some of the most, like, libertarian, anti-tax, you know, anti-government Republicans. It's very interesting to me to see there being a wing of Republicans who are now rethinking all that stuff and are thinking, look, the only institutions in America that we control are government, basically, right? Like the GOP controls state legislatures. They control a majority of state legislatures. Uh, and t- after 2022, they'll probably control even more. They'll have even more power there. 
they don't control uh, the press, most of the press. They, you know, they have, they have obviously the, the foxes of the world and so on and so forth, but they don't control the majority of the press. They increasingly don't have that much of a presence in the Fortune 500, particularly on cultural social issues. Uh, they don't control even a lot of the religious organizations have become very progressive. It's just kind of an odd, odd turn over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, and they don't, you know, they they certainly don't control higher education or most of the, the education system. Uh, I think that this puts a lot of Republicans in, into the position of saying, well, what do we control? We control state legislatures. Uh, we can, when we organize ourselves, have a lot of power in school boards. We have power in the courts. We should be using those powers to shape cultural and social outcomes. Uh, I think a lot of, you know, there are some people on the right who reflexively kind of recoil at that, right? The people who bought into the libertarian consensus saying, no, the government shouldn't do that. That's illiberal and so on and so forth. My point of view on this is that that's always been the history of not only governance in America, but governance across the world. Governments have always promoted certain types of culture, certain types of values. They've used various tools and levers to do this. Uh, I, well, one example I can think of is that, you know, a lot of people, I think, reflexively think the Constitution just like prohibits prayer in schools. Oh, yeah, this, you know, there's an you know, establishment clause. We, we can't do it. It's unconstitutional. That didn't come into, pa- into place until like the mid 20th century, right? There used to be prayer in public schools for like, you know, the, 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 the bulk of American history. There was an intentional kind of conscious movement among people who wanted to have it legally interpreted as, as impermissible and unconstitutional, right? Because I think people on the left understood that, or liberals understood that it was a form of promotion of values and doctrine that they didn't necessarily agree with, right? They, they thought that secularism should be ruling in schools. And so they organized to do that. Uh, there are many more examples like that of the government actively promoting culture and values. And I don't think you can actually get away from that at all. I think the government's always going to be doing that to some extent. It's just it's just a question of what values does it does it promote, and I think that's where these populist right guys are saying we got to get in the game because if you're not on if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. That that's kind of their point of view. Right. Well, so but let's maybe maybe it's worth maybe it's worth it's it's worth running through this article again. Whose writer whose writer's name I forget, but it appeared in the New York Times. I just tweeted it just because I think it's an excellent summary of what this new right is. I think we're, we're talking about it, but I think many, maybe many listeners don't understand what we're talking about. J- just to give a, just to name, drop a few of the names. And again, the, the piece is very good. And then I think it's a very good tour of it. Um, you've got writers and thinkers like uh, Patrick Deneen, who's at Notre Dame, who wrote this book called Why Liberalism Failed, which oddly enough, Obama actually recommended when it came out. It was on his reading list in 2019 or 20 or whenever it was. Um, you've got people like Adrian Vermeule, um, who's at Harvard, who's, very much conservative and, and a, a Catholic integralist, and we can get into what that means in a second. You've got people like Rod Dreher, who I've interviewed for Pull Request, who's an Orthodox Christian, but also writes for American Conservative, wrote a book called The Benedict Option, in which um, it's one of these misinterpreted books. He's not actually saying Christians should live in monastic communities. It's more like, kind of like what Deneen says, in that they should form these Burkean little platoons of community structures that l- live within the liberal rubric, and, and, and then you've got, you know, sort of harder voices. You mentioned Tucker Carlson. Um, there, there was this whole hang up with Hungary this year with people actually showing up in Hungary or, or, or people like Matt Iglesias denouncing it. Um, and of course, the, the reason why Hungary, which at the end of the day isn't, you know, that important a country in the scheme of things, is important because you, you, you seem to have a sort of openly nationalist Catholic leader who promulgates very pro-family policies. If, as mm-hmm. I understand it, if you have four children in Hungary, you don't pay income tax anymore, you know, things like that, right? And it, it, and again, not that Hungary itself is that important, but it's, it's, it's one of the few victories in the sort of Western liberal world in which you do have 
national conservatism, right? Just to name the conference, which is about to happen in two weeks and which I think I might even show up at in, in Orlando. That's a lot of the names that you're dropping and I'm dropping kind of show up at, and it's kind of this powwow. Right. Um, you, you've also got people like Sarab Amari. You mentioned Josh Hawley. Um, mm. A lot of people who, again, kind of re, sort of revindicate a sort of very avowedly nationalist um, right-wing spirit that's not at all in keeping with, I think, what you're citing, which is like the bow-tie-wearing, you know, libertarian, no-tax, and you know, pro-corporate person. Like, these people are the sort of people who would say, like, yeah, no, we should, yes, we should have family benefits as part of, like, a national program and increasing the birth rate or whatever, right? And right. it's it's it's... It's a very different feeling, and 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 part of it, and and Vermeule writes about this a lot. Uh, you know, the, the the notion of he wrote a piece for for the Atlantic that cut a lot of flack that that the notion that there should be a greater good, right? The government that's kind of what you're addressing in terms of policy. The government should come in and actually say no, no, no. This is actually the greater good, and we should actively right. take steps to promulgate that. Um, I, I mean, I think you're right that of course governments have always, in some sense, held some values, right? They, there's no notion of no values, but I, I do think there's a sort of meta politics to liberalism, at least as it's existed in the mm. last tw- half of the 20th century, that says, well, I mean, you know, the greater good is one of not having one in the sense that we allow individuals to pursue whatever they want. And I'm I'm kind of mimicking Deneen's criticism of liberalism. Modern liberalism just seeks to liberate the individual from any unchosen obligation, right? Mm. And by the pursuit of this radical individualism. In that sense, that is the greatest good, right? It's not, we're not actually saying we should have, you know, nuclear families with at least, you know, 2.1 children and a functional manufacturing sector or something. We're just saying, no, individual liberty will figure out in some sort of weird political invisible hand way what the greater good is. And I think right. what the national conservatives are saying is, well, no, right? That, that's, that's the liberalism that Deneen is saying has failed, Right. And so one of the things that like like Rod, when he was posting about this piece, um, was saying, you know, the post liberal right, which is an interesting coinage that seems to be getting a certain amount of momentum. Like, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) Post liberal. Right. Because it's we've we've been so long in this liberal paradigm. The thought that there's something coming after it just seems almost like like what is that? What does that even look like? And and to me, it doesn't seem like a very coherent point of view, I think. If you were to ask all of these people, they'd come up, come back with slightly different visions. But just anyhow, mm-hmm. just to anchor, I think, what this is to maybe those who don't spend as much time as you and I spend on Twitter, right? <laughs> following these sure. people. Yeah, of course. No, I mean, I think it. I think you're right in the sense that I don't think this, this camp or this group of people have really put together a coherent agenda as of yet. And I think part of that is that they are right now a minority faction within their coalition, but they are, I think, rising in some ways i don't think trump you know i don't think trump is well are they look i do th- or do they just exist on twitter I can't, no I can't no no no, no. That, no they definitely exist in real life um and i'll tell you why they, they exist in real life because they're starting to get the attention of institutions that actually have some weight or heft in the republican party so like a few months ago uh i don't actually i don't remember the exact day i think it was a few months ago the heritage foundation like announced that it would no longer take like tech money right and this was kind of shocking to a lot of people because the Heritage Foundation has really not been with like the, the populist right or the national conservatives or whatever you want to call them. Uh, but I think they felt enough pressure or enough heat uh, that they felt like they had to dissociate themselves from like the tech industry because the tech industry is probably the biggest like whipping post of this faction of people, right? Like they absolutely think that these products are changing the structure and fabric of the United States and that there should be some kind of government policy response to that, right? Which I think 
for the most part, the, the Republican Party in Congress does not want to do that. They're not supporting anything that would do that, except maybe for some sex, stuff around Section 230. But, you know, the Heritage Foundation did that. Uh, second, you have members of Congress, I think, starting to, to embrace some of these things. Josh Hawley is obviously the most prominent example as a U.S. senator. Uh, but you also have people in the House starting to do it, like Ken Buck, who's the ranking member uh, on the, the Judiciary Committee or subcommittee related to antitrust, who's actually willing to work with Democrats to break up big tech companies. Uh, you also have people running for office, uh, including people who have big money behind them, like Peter Thiel has put serious money down for J.D. Vance, who's running for Senate in Ohio, uh, and Blake Masters is running for Senate in Arizona. Um, like I said, I don't think Trump is much of an ideologue. I don't think he has much of an ideology besides just kind of some personality characteristics. Uh, but I think Trump kind of blew a lot of this open too. When Trump would start talking about being antagonistic towards certain trade policies or being antagonistic towards tech, the tech industry or China, what he did is he actually moved GOP uh, grassroots public opinion in favor of those policy positions, right? He, he didn't really get any backlash. Uh, to disrupting kind of libertarian or neoliberal philosophy that have been so powerful in the GOP for so long. So I do think this group of people are gaining some amount of steam uh, among the actual Republican base, among voters, and getting some lawmakers, some think tanks and institutions to start to at least bend in their direction. Now, again, do I think that that they're running the show? No, not at all. I think that the old consensus in the Republican Party, the Reaganite consensus, is still very strong. Uh, All the leadership is still deeply bought into it. But I think the same way you saw maybe a Bernie Sanders in 2014 start to rise in power and develop a power base, I think you're going to start seeing these guys do the exact same thing because they're addressing, they're addressing I think, a GOP base who, and a conservative movement that I think their beliefs are just very scrambled right now. You know, I think when a party is out of power, that's when you start to see them reorient their positions, right? And I think just not having Trump in the White House also opens up a lot of possibilities for like debate and discussion and for like, where should we go from here? Uh, do I again? Do I expect them to take over the institution and the party within the next four years? Probably not. But I do think that the Republican Party is going to have a more sophisticated worldview than simply responding to every social and economic problem with "let's cut taxes," uh, "let's deregulate something," because I think that's not necessarily what the base itself wants. I actually find it very fascinating that Republican governors are like banning private companies from installing certain like vaccine mandates, for instance, right? Uh, on, on the one hand, you could say, oh, that's just a culture war issue. You know, they don't like vaccines. They don't like mandates. But it's actually very unusual for like Republicans to step in and like say that we will not allow a private company to do something to workers. You know, whatever the issue is, generally speaking, the Republican Party is not in favor of doing that, right? Uh, but they almost fuse some of the vaccine skepticism or at least mandate skepticism with this kind of new, newly kind of aggressive approach um, to saying that, hey, the market's not always right. And we do have this tool in front of us, the government, to rem- promote our value, which in this case would be sovereignty and, and you know, medical uh, freedom or, or whatever they would frame it as. So, yeah, I do think there are signs that these people are getting a little bit of steam uh, where they go uh, over the next few years. I mean, I think that's an open question. I don't think anyone. Well, actually, I was one of the few left-leaning people in America probably who thought Bernie Sanders would go somewhere in 2014. I remember talking to a number of my friends about it uh, who told me he would go nowhere and be a nobody. Um, but yeah, I, like I said, most people wouldn't have said in 2014 or 2015 that he would end up being a big deal and highly influential in U.S. politics. And I think that if you're looking at some of the people out there on the scene now, the ones that you and I just discussed, uh, I only see these people getting more influential over the next few years. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good point. Uh, by the way, it's a total plug. Uh, we, uh, I interviewed Blake Bastards for the pull request. You can actually find him in this app. Um, I think he's might have been like the first show. And it's funny because 
just to be clear, so mm. Blake Masters like CEO for Teal Capital. He comes from like the sort of Tealiverse, which is obviously very tech focused. And a lot of his rhetoric, if you go to his website, is actually anti-tech. So it's it's often it's often some of the most disruptive political figures in American life have actually been, in some sense, class traders who you know are from that class, but then espouse a philosophy against it. You can cite FDR as the obvious example. And right. um, but it's interesting that's and again, I mean, JD Vance is also kind of an example in that, of course, you know, hillbilly elegy and his hard scrabble upbringing, but end of the day, what, did he go to Yale Law School and then work, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, yeah. not not that these people are actual revolutionaries, they're not Che, che Guevara, but um, if you look at the history of people who tend to be reformers and revolutionaries, they tend to be people who are in that situation, right? The actual, the story of like someone who's right. like a hard scrabble working class person who becomes a leader and leads a rebellion, is like, it's actually very rare. What's more likely is it tends to be someone who has some level of education, uh, but then what they do is they travel around outside that bubble for a little bit and they see like the distance or like the dissonance between the two things. Um, and then they decide that they need to rebel against the class that they're part of or the social cohort that they've been kind of raised in or bought into. And I think that's actually what is happening with a lot of these people. I think you could include Vance in that, that category. You could include uh, Josh Hawley in that category uh, and some of these other folks as well. And to some extent, you could probably include someone like Elizabeth Warren on the left in the same category. So, yeah, I do think that there is some people like to, you know, they, they think it's a gotcha thing. Oh, it's a you're a hypocrite. You know, you're rich and you're talking about the rich or whatever. But like, yeah, that's that's a story throughout history, throughout many different countries, actually. So. He's he's one of us and he did well. And now he's fighting for us. Who cares? Like, they don't see the hypocrisy in it necessarily. Right. Right, like to them, it's right. not actually a disqualifier. Um, so, okay, interesting. I, I, I mean, one thing again, getting back to that piece, and getting back to like the Orban fetishism. One thing that I find hard, and again, like of the of the various worlds that I straddle, one is kind of like the European and the American worlds. Like I've I've lived in Europe, strictly speaking, have an EU passport, whatever. And but it, there's there's something about Europe, right? Like, the sort of what I call the blood and soil nationalism, right? The fact that like, you know, you, you don't become French or Spanish, right? Like, I, <laughs> I go back to the little town my grandparents came from and look at the 12th century church where my grandmother was baptized. And like, that's it. That's like part of me. You can't join mm. or become that. Well, you know, the American spirit, which, by the way, I, I consider to be morally superior, just to be clear, is the, cre- the creedal nationhood of the Constitution, this very short document, in fact, that defines a nation and that's it, right? And, and, and again, I, I feel that that's, I don't know, somehow morally superior to the, to the sort of the, you know, the altars of, of blood and soil that typified sort of nationhood in, in Europe until very recently. So I, I just, I, I don't know. I find it to be a weird fit <laughs> to have, it, and of course, there's always been a Jacksonian spirit in American politics, right? You know, meaning Andrew Jackson, who kind of typified, you know, obviously a Southerner and who typified mm-hmm. a sort of isolationist, you know, very rooted in the soil, anti, anti-finance, anti-bank, anti-big city, sort of sentiment. So I, I don't know that it's completely foreign to the American polity, but I just wonder, mm. I don't know, like when, when Deneen says, you know, or, you know, post-liberalism, like, I don't know. I just don't see the U S you know, I, I can see, I can see Europe, for example, reverting to either, you know, extreme nationalism or fascism of some form or another. Like I can see that happening. And in fact, in, in almost every, every Western European country now, including Spain, which for a while was an exception, you do find like a seriously hard right-wing party, that, you know, doesn't quite form part of the ruling coalition, but probably takes, I don't know, 20-ish percent in national elections, which is, you know, a pretty serious chunk, and comes within kind of 
flirting distance of power, kind of like one thinks of uh, Le Pen in um, Le Pen in uh, in France. But like in the U.S., that doesn't really exist, really. <laughs> like you, you know, these guys don't pull at twenty percent in a national election or anywhere even near that. I don't know. I just have a hard time seeing it happening and coalescing because. The U.S. really is, I, I hate using like, oh, we're so multicultural, but it's true, right? What, what would that ruling coalition right. look like? It would be evangelical Protestant Christians, a bunch of Notre Dame Catholics, and some Orthodox Jews. I mean, <laughs> I mean are you really going to form some sort of cohesive nationalist conservative movement with that? I, I, I don't know. It just, it's, it, I, it, I don't know. Do yeah, it, it is. It, yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously a different situation in that. Yeah, I think the cultural background is different. The United States is based off of um, basically it's based off of Protestant settlers, right? Like people who are highly individualistic, right? And like those things do carry over and matter. I was a skeptic about that when I was studying it in college. But the more the more I studied, the more it kind of looks like it's true. Like I remember there was even research on China showing that the region of China that grew wheat instead of rice is much more individualistic and like it has higher suicide rates and everything else in the regions who, who like grew rice. So like the Protestant founding of the U S I think was very, very powerful in terms of shaping a lot of the cultural and national ethos. And so I think you are right. That U S is fundamentally different in, in many ways. That being said, I don't think that the current orientation of the, of like the U S uh, social and political system, like highly atomized individualistic, so on and so forth is necessarily even the orientation of the U S for its whole history, right? I think that that turn in, Amer- in the American like social fabric um, occurred, you know, in the kind of the latter part of the 20th century, right? Like I think in the late 70s and 80s and 90s, we saw much more of a turn uh, in that direction away from communalism and things like that. And, you know, I think one of the things that people, and this may be one area where, you know, I would, I, me and, and people on the, on this populist right faction would, would kind of have a little bit different opinions, but I think some of them may suggest that this was a result of immigration, right? Like uh, the, we had the immigration reforms in the 1960s, uh, which basically allowed, for the first time, really allowed a uh, large number of Asian Americans, Latin Americans, and people from uh, you know Africa, Caribbean, to actually start moving to the United States. So I think some people on the populist or nationalist right may argue that this this wave of immigration reduces, reduces social solidarity, reduces social cohesion. Uh, it makes it more difficult to have kind of the, the stronger kind of communal bonds that maybe the U.S. saw uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, I don't necessarily know if that's true. I think that there is a lot of potential among, uh, for instance, new immigrant communities to the United States to adopt to, to sort of import some of their social and cultural worldview, which is can be very communal. The, the challenge is fusing that together with kind of a uh, super national or, you know, super ordinate identity of Americanism uh, and bringing it together in a coherent coalition. And I do think that, you know, I, I, I look at this a lot, like that what happened in like Florida and Texas in the 2020 election was actually very interesting. You know, people say, well, it's just the Cuban-Americans who vote for the GOP. Well, it's actually not just the Cuban-Americans. If you looked at the the composition of, like, the county-level results and so on and so forth, uh, we actually saw a substantial swing among Latino voters in both states towards the GOP. Uh, you know, Tejanos in, in Texas and other communities. Uh, a friend of mine uh, was doing some reporting outside Philadelphia. I think it was Philadelphia area. I was talking about how, like, Guatemalans became much more Republican. And like, I think that there is actually like a coalition there potentially uh, that can be built out on issues like work and family 
and probably embracing a more social, somewhere between social conservative and social moderate worldview, um, or culturally conservative or moderate worldview. That could actually be a stable coalition, but it's also kind of like, you know, you need the right person to lead it, right? And you need the right strategy to build it and retain it. Um, but I do think it's actually theoretically possible, although it's going to be difficult to do that, I think, if the populist or nationalist right insists very hard on, like, limiting immigration, right? Beyond, like, okay, we want a legal and, like, orderly border, and we don't want tons of illegal immigration, and we want people to go through the process. Like, that's fine. You could probably build a coalition doing that. But, like, if, you know, there's people, there's some people on the hard right in Congress who would say we need, like, an immigration moratorium, or we need to cut our immigration levels in half. If you start advocating for those things, I think that will alienate some of the newer immigrant communities. Um, but if they could find some way to manage that coalition to where they, you know, they're not quite as out there on those issues, um, you may actually be able to find a stable, I think, footprint for those people. Because I think, you know, this is where the demographic destiny stuff really like the rubber hits the road is like, I don't think it's actually real. Like, I don't think it's inherent that a much more uh, multiracial or cultural America would necessarily be very progressive. Uh, I know because I grew up in many of those communities myself, and they tend to be socially moderate or conservative or culturally moderate or conservative and economically probably in the middle. Uh, there's nothing inherently about them that makes them left wing. But I do think if one party is working overtime and courting all those people and also just like is obsessed with racial polarization, like there's a reason Joe Biden referred to like writing down your ID number on an absentee ballot in Georgia as worse than Jim Crow. Right. Because Georgia, you know, Georgia Democrats need to have a, like not over 90 percent of uh, African-Americans voting for them. And then and as the percentage of Hispanics in Georgia goes up past 10 percent, they need to have that those groups of people voting for them to stay competitive. Right. Like Democrats rely on their Democrats actually are more reliant, reliant on racial polarization than the Republicans are in some ways. Um, but if they can get past that, if they can break that, which I think would be healthy for the American people. And in 2020, it did, there was some racial depolarization in voting. Then I think the new right does actually have a coalition, but you know it does take some finessing, and it would probably take some kind of figure at the top, similar to like a Ronald Reagan, someone who's rhetorically brilliant, who's seen as uh, empathetic and compassionate, who has a real like vision they can promote from the stump and across the the states. I think to be the figurehead of a coalition like that, and right now it's kind of hard to see that person, but I can't imagine it theoretically. I mean, it, it's not super hard to to like come up with one in a lab, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, yeah, if you follow the right post-2020, like, that was the dream, uh, sort of multicultural, working-class, populist, right-wing coalition. Like, that was the dream, right? Which mm. would, right, because, you know, the narrative on the left has always been, the, you know, demographics are destiny, and to the extent that, you know, Hispanics reproduce more or whatever, you know, they would naturally gravitate to the left, and then, yeah, the, the, 2020 was a repudiation of that. I think you're completely correct that I mean, to assume that you know, the Hispanic vote is necessarily going to swing left. It's like, no, I mean, I, <laughs> so, so much of the progressive left we can gender around, you know, woke this and trans that I, I think would be by and large, deeply unappealing to a lot of working class Hispanic. Um, and not, not to mention, I think also reminding them of the authoritarian left-wing regimes that they fled. Right. I mean, a, a figure, somebody like AOC to a voter in Miami, whether they be Venezuelan, Colombian, Cuban, like, They've seen this movie before, right? <laughs> this is exactly mm -hmm. Latin American populist leftism, and they want like nothing to do with it at all. <laughs> and in fact, they're shocked. Dude, I, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Again. I'll give you an example. So we're about to run into a Virginia gubernatorial election, right? And um, our current governor, Ralph Northam, you know, he he hit 
like a, a potentially career-ending scandal in 2019, which is when you know a right-wing blogger figured out that he had this yearbook, he had his yearbook photos, and he was in, like in a Klan robe or a blackface or something like that. I, I think we still don't know which one he was in the photo because there were two people in the photo, but it was in his yearbook. And I think virtually every Democratic elected official in the United States of any prominence called on Ralph Northman to resign. And so what I did is I wrote a Quillette article and I was just like, dude, this was like 30 years ago. He was in med school. I haven't seen him be really racist since then. You know, I think he's a decent governor. He's my governor. I'm in, I live in Virginia. Uh, I didn't think there was any reason for him to resign. I think this was one of the least popular articles I ever wrote in my life. Uh, then I decided to go on Fox News and like promote my article and get the argument to them as well. So I just kept pushing it. Um, what happened is once they actually took some surveys, they realized that uh, there was no strong desire among Virginians to have Ralph Northam resign. In fact, most black voters were standing with him. And I think that there was just this huge disconnect between what people have imagined their social norms and etiquette are online and what the, like, the actual reality is among minorities on the ground, which is that if you, you know, seeing someone 30 or 40 years ago in the South engage in racist humor who's a white Southern guy is not super unusual to a lot of these people. And they also recognize that he doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore and that he's actually a pretty solid governor. and He's actually materially improved their lives in some ways. And like they weren't super judgmental about it. Whereas everyone online, you know, they're they're creating new social norms every month, every week. Right. They're coming up with new ways to like uh, dissociate themselves with people, to be judgmental towards other people. The idea of just like talking things out and like, you know, coming to new uh, resolutions without conflict, you know, it's kind of kind of alien to them. But I think. Because of the social context in which I grew up in, I grew up in the Deep South as well as we were having a lot of debates about these things. Uh, you know, I just I don't approach them with the same judgmental eye. And I think that's a lot of minorities in America. I think they tend to come from more working class environments, middle class environments, tend to not be, you know, filling out the upper echelon of Fortune 500 companies and elite colleges and places where social etiquette around what you say and how you behave in terms of very like what was come across as superficial or trivial matter to a lot of people, you know, I don't think that minorities to a large extent exist within that context. And I think if there's someone who can really tap into that in the cultural, social, and political spheres, um, then I think they can put, they can actually put together a coalition of people who aren't necessarily infatuated with every new social cultural trend that's promoted through social media channels and becomes like orthodoxy within a couple of weeks. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is like the like tomatoometer thing from like Rotten Tomatoes and the Chappelle special, where like all the critics are like painting it, but it's like ninety percent mm. popular. Like, there's clearly a massive disconnect between American popular feeling and elite feeling, which I've always felt, by the way. Like, again, I've always kind of kept a foot in the red state world, and like all my blue state friends is like, you realize like ninety eight percent of Americans outside of a few cities think everything you're saying is completely insane, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> no one agrees with what you're saying at all, and it just it, it, not that I would mm. actually say that, but Maybe I would now, but um, yeah, it, it, it's odd. It's odd this delta, and I, I don't know how long this can exist without it either exploding. Or here's another question, because this is something you would know about. Yeah. That um, I, I, <clears throat> I interviewed. Um, speaking of Daily Wire, I interviewed uh, Ben Shapiro recently, and um, mm-hmm. you know, it, and, and I didn't get into the political thing because I, you know, I don't like talking about politics that much, although I'm doing a lot of it recently, but it's more like, you know, he's actually managed to create like an alternative media ecosphere, right? Like the daily wire, as I understand it does phenomenally well. And, you know, like, you know, he's not going to get the right Brooklyn brunch invites or whatever, but 
you know, it doesn't mm. matter. The amount, of, the amount of traffic he drives, like he dominates on Facebook more than entire networks, right? And so it, what do you think? Is it, does, does non-elite media kind of matter or are we fooling ourselves that like maybe it's cool and maybe there's like a business model around Substack or Colin or whatever, but like in terms of what's going to actually move the needle at the SF Unified School District or Harvard Admissions or DC, it doesn't matter. Like it's just irrelevant. Yeah, it's a really good question because I think if someone knew the exact answer to those questions, they would be like socially engineering everybody, right? They'd be like, okay, I'll just create the right uh, platform and I will like re-engineer the entire society around it. Um, my my sense is that what happens in some of those places you were just talking about, Harvard Admissions, San Francisco United, uh, San Francisco United School District, is that they are very close. They're very tight, narrow, closed ecosystems, right? So they don't necessarily have a. There isn't. They aren't necessarily vulnerable to a lot of pressure from outside their ecosystems, right? Like they don't rely on. Like Harvard has a. I don't know what their like admitted classes, but it's tiny, right? Like they're the the number of actual constituents they deal with is very very small, and I think we're seeing that with some of like the arguments around Yale. I don't know if you followed the Washington Free Beacon stories about that, but like. You know, they're probably thinking about boards and trustees and some donors and their student bodies and some professors maybe. But like it's not, it's very hard to penetrate these places, I think, if you're not within those constituencies themselves. Right. Which is why I think that like a lot of these people on the new right, like one of the things that like Tom Cotton even, who, by the way, is not at all like a in most in most means is not like a, a heterodox or populist Republicans. But I. But I think he has, in recent years, realized there's some more energy for that. So, like, he's introduced a bill that would basically, like, impose a wealth tax on the largest college endowments. And I was looking at that, and I was thinking if the Republicans thought like Democrats, they would have done that, they would have done that 15, 20 years ago, right? Because you have institutions that are, like, entirely uh, segregated from conservatives. I don't know, maybe 4 or 5% of pe- students and faculty at those universities probably vote Republican, right? Uh, they're producing social and cultural elites who are extremely hostile to conservatives and everything conservatism has to offer. Um, why exactly aren't you taxing them, right? Like why aren't you actually doing something about them that would actually uh, make worlds collide right now? Because the, right now they don't have, they have no incentive to pay any attention to what happens outside of their corner of the world, which is probably the, you know, five to five to seven, eight, nine percent most left-wing people in America, or at least more, most culturally left-wing people in America. Um, but there are actually things you can do about that. You can actually reduce their social and political power if you are willing to use the tools that are available to you. Uh, for for years, we you know the Democrats have used tax policy to do all kinds of things. You know, to engage all kinds of social engineering, whether it comes on like drug policy with you know sin taxes or taxes on cigarettes or so on and so forth. Um, or I think that the way that they approach building out this university system in the first place, because it's all floated on on federal money, you know, without federal lending system, this whole university system wouldn't even exist. Um, so, you know, right. these tools are being used, right? Like it's just that the right doesn't have a whole, you know, they haven't, they haven't exercised those muscles, right? They haven't used them in a long time since uh, the Reaganite turn. And I think a lot of the libertarian consensus that formed on their side. Um, but I do think that if people on the public side and the private side, build alternative institutions like what's happening with Colin, what's happening with Substack, and if they use the levers against the ones that already exist. Because I don't think we can just build an entirely different ecosystem and then pretend that the things that exist, you know, they don't, they're not there anymore, right? They actually do have to be confronted and challenged like directly at some point. 
just because they have the power of incumbency, right? Like they're already there uh, and they've already amassed this, these kind of closed ecosystems of very powerful, influential people. So, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I often think of the truism that like, at least in tech, monopolies are rarely actually broken, mm. right? Like Microsoft never lost a desktop. Google's never lost search. Facebook hasn't really lost popular social media. Twitter's never lost the elites. Like it's, it's not actually the case that you overthrow monopoly. You just create a different field of play that is at least as important as the previous one that then gets dominated and then eventually made redundant in turn. Right. And so yeah. it's, I, I don't see the Republicans taking over, you know, Harvard admissions anytime. Like, I just don't think it's going to happen. Although right. other forms of education or power centers might emerge. I, yeah. I, I mean, no, I agree with you. I doubt they would ever take it over, but they could reduce the power of all these institutions in society. One by building, helping right. build alternatives and two by, kind of rating in or regulating places that have negative externalities on society. I think that, for instance, a large, a lot of the really large liberal foundations are basically financing everything that's happening in criminal justice in America. Like George Soros is spending a million dollars of his money on this, on this awesome police staffing referendum. What does George Soros have to do with police staffing in Austin? It's just like an ideological fancy he has, right? I mean, in his mansion in Westchester County or wherever, I'm sure he has tons of private security guarding him. He did he has no interaction with, with crime in Austin or police in Austin, right? Um, you could always just, you could actually change tax laws, so like tax these large foundations so that their money isn't just going into all these like left wing or cultural ideological causes. And the money could be used for something good in America. I don't know. You could pay for some, someone's health care. You could build some housing, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, like these are all tools and options available to you. You don't just have to build alternatives. You probably should be building alternatives to all these things, but like, you can actually reduce their power in some way as well. Like it's not, it's not impossible. And it's been done before with different sectors of the economy that people thought were deleterious. So. Yeah. I'm, I remember I I interviewed Rufo, Chris Rufo, and I remember he, you know, he cited that there's a sort of urban deep state of typically left-wing foundations that sort of collaborate with, with civic government to just, you know, perpetuate a certain progressive platform, often despite, you know, demog- demographic, uh, sort of, or sorry, democratic pushback. And uh, it does seem that like a lot of these foundations, it's like, yeah, it's like, what do they care about to fund the police? Like, why the hell is some random foundation, um, you know, backing this policy? I, it, it just, it smells to me vaguely undemocratic somehow. And um, I don't know, it's, the other thing I'll observe is that it, somehow the left always thinks that it's losing when it's actually winning. Like that's part of their yeah. thing that they have to be rebelling against them. And then the right thinks that it's winning when it's actually totally losing. <laughs> right? Mm. Like there's, there's yeah. very few victories you can point at like, Oh, the right just won that. I mean, other than the, the surprise Trump election, there's very little you can point that said, Oh yeah, the right just kicked the left out. Like I can't think of yeah. almost a simple example, a single example in, in recent history. Yeah, I mean, I think they had they had Trump and they had Brexit, right? They had like two big they right. had like two big things in a row. And then I think there was such a reaction to those two things that and the right didn't necessarily have like a game plan the day after for either of them, really. If I like if we're being honest, like they didn't really know what to do after that. They were just like, Okay, we, we won take our ball go home like you know like i think it was a left who at that point just said okay we got to like do things and then in uh the cultural sphere they were extremely successful in the government sphere they were somewhat successful in the united states they weren't as successful in the uk uh certainly after brexit but you know i, I think they had to do they do have quite a bit of hegemony in, in many of the institutions as well there okay so, so we've we've it seems like we've agreed on everything we're, we're coming to the mm. end of the show Although the, the audience is still going strong. I feel we need to disagree on yeah. something. And so I'm going to cite something we're probably going to disagree on, which, 
and we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, Zaid, but I'll just mention the topic, Israel. Oh, yeah, that's a country in the Middle East. I've heard of it. <laughs> Indeed it is. I mean, actually, to be honest, well, that's not true. I've read a few retweets about it, but I don't know if you've actually written a long-form piece on it or if, if you even feel strongly about it. Maybe you don't, and... This, uh, this is like a bad, uh, this is a bad idea. I, 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 read, I mean, I've reported some, I've done some reported stories on it uh, and a few opinion things over the years. I honestly, I don't write about it that much. Like, it's funny, like, people say, like, like Barry Weiss, like, people always think about her in Israel. And I, I look at her writing and I'm like, maybe she writes about it once every six months or something. Like, I think, I think people get, people get like, so, right. uh, I think people get so passionate about this issue that they kind of assume everyone else is too. Uh, so it's not, yeah, like, like I'll write about it occasionally, but it's not, you know, it's not an obsession for me the way it is. Some people certainly, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't say it's an obsession for me either, though. I, I do plan on visiting. In fact, I plan on visiting this year. But have you, have you gone there before or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My, my last sort of backpacking vacation before I joined the, the, the corporate Borg at the tail end of my graduate career was spending a month in Israel with the mm. then Jewish girlfriend, which was very interesting. I mean, it was a while ago, but it, it just happened to coincide with the Gaza pullout, um, mm. which for those who aren't familiar with the Israeli history, um, you know, Gaza used to be sort of actively, I call it occupied. I mean, the choice of language here already states a position, but anyhow, Israel was act- sort of actively in Gaza. There were also settlements in Gaza, which is part of it. And that all just came to an end in, I guess, August, September of 2005 when I was there. And so we got to witness this major sort of seismic change in the Israeli body politic. But, and then we also visited the West Bank and a few other places. But in any case, it, but it was a while ago. It was, it was pre-BB and stuff. So um, have, have you been there? No, I've never actually been there. I think the only place in the Middle East I've really been is um, Turkey. Um, I don't know if Morocco counts. I've been to Morocco, uh, and I've been to the airport. The I've been to the nice. airport been, in Dubai, in well. Dubai, uh, the UAE, the airport. That's about it. Mostly, I go to, when I travel to Asia. Mostly, I go to Pakistan because that's where my family's from. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't travel as much in the Middle East. I think mostly my interest in it is just from U.S. policy perspective because I've done some foreign policy reporting, um, like you know DC stuff. Um, but I'd like to go. I really would like to go. Uh, I, I actually really enjoy some of the culture from Israel in terms of like some of the movies and films are, are pretty interesting and pretty good. I've seen I see a number of them. Which one? Uh, Which you one's know, I, Well, this one is kind of political, actually. I really have you seen Waltz with Bashir? Oh yeah, it's yeah, a very, yeah. it's a very yeah. beautifully made movie. It's a very good, very very good movie uh, about the war and the war in Lebanon in the eighties. Um, yeah, it's a really yeah. really fantastic movie. They have really really great art from Israel, and I actually like Israel a lot culturally. Like, I wish that some aspects of Israeli culture have been imported to the United States. You know, ranging from communalism to uh, their proportional electoral system, I think is much more fair than ours and gives more political choice. Um, so, you know, in many ways, I think people, people maybe they'll read something I write about Israeli foreign policy and they'll think, oh, that guy hates Israel. I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's people like that out there for sure, but like, it's not me. So, you know. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's one of the, one thing I, getting back to the, to the previous thread about like the new right and fetishizing Hungary or whatever, one of the things that strikes me as odd is that they don't, bring up Israel mm. as an example of a sort of, you know, national project with a serious, you know, religious slash tribal sort of tilt to it that is successful and impactful and, you know, has a GDP per capita of greater than 50K and yeah. does pretty well. But, I, you know. Well, I think I think on the right, some um, 
Well, the Christian evangelicals, part of them, they do respect Israel primarily for religious reasons, right? They see it as part of their scripture and so on and so forth. There's, right. Of course, there are Jewish Americans who obviously respect Israel's culture and I think maybe would like to emulate parts of it. But you're right that it isn't necessarily like, like I've never heard anyone on the right say we should really look at Israel's healthcare system or like the kibbutzim or something, right? I've never heard them say anything like that, even though I kind of think we right. should look at those things because they're pretty, they're pretty interesting in many ways. Right. Um, I think maybe it's something interesting during the recent Gaza conflict. I felt like a way a lot of the right wing commentators were responding was like, you know, America has been disengaging from a lot of our wars. So they were almost like living vicariously through Israel's, right? Where they kind of felt like they were on that side of the conflict. Uh, and then I got a lot of like war on terror vibes and stuff. But it didn't seem like it was tied to like a larger interest in Israeli culture and society, which I actually do have some interest in that. I like reading about it and learning about it. You know, I read Aretz and, you know, Times of Israel, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, I think they largely saw it as like, a uh analogy for the u.s war on terror and you know gaza or hamas and so on and so forth were filling in the role of al-qaeda or isis or whatever and so on and so forth which to me is less interesting because i think you probably would agree with me on this i think transposing like american context to everywhere else in the world is one of the most annoying things that americans like ever do because like we're not, yes. you know, it's not that there's yes. no, it's not that there's no links, <laughs> nothing we can learn, but like it's not the exact same thing. And I think a lot of times Americans do think it's the exact same thing. I'm like, no, it's they have their own history, man. They have their own culture. Like it evolved differently. Like you know, so yeah. I mean, those I often call this. This is the privileges of American empire, right? That you see the entire mm. external world as merely projections of your own domestic neuroses. Right. right. <laughs> it's this weird geopolitical solipsism that doesn't accept that you know. I don't know. Fidel Castro could have gone communist irrespective of American actions, right? Like, or right. that, you know, what happened in Chile had nothing to do really. And it didn't actually have much of anything to do with what the CIA was doing or that, you know, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict is not actually a metaphor for white minority conflict in the U.S. or whatever. <laughs> like, it, it's all yeah. these things. So, well, what, yeah. well, what's really interesting is like, if you listen to Western academics talk about the rest of the world, and then you just like read the news in those countries. Like the the actual people in those countries don't think as much about America as we think they think they that they think about America. Like like I you know, right. you, like you'll you'll see like Western educated academics say, Oh yeah, India and Pakistan, they're in their state because of the British. And like if you go to Pakistan, people barely even talk about the British. People barely even talk about colonialism. Like they're thinking about what the government's doing right now, thinking about what businesses are doing right now. They're thinking about religious debates that are happening in their country. Right. They're not they're not blaming everything that bad that happens in their country on the British. They're not, they're not talking about everything good that happens in their country based on some, you know, uh, noblesse oblige by the West or whatever. Like, they actually do generally think of themselves as sovereign. They think about themselves making decisions in their lives, having an indigenous culture and, and political system. And, and you know, I think it's very condescending and patronizing when we pretend it's always about us. It's, like, not always about us. I mean... Obviously, like, okay, yeah, you can't study, like, the history of Vietnam without talking about the Vietnam War. And, like, you know, the American military had a big role in that. Um, but at the same time, these places all have their own kind of destiny. They have their own choices they're making, their own destiny that they're following. And it's like, you know, I think we need to respect that about the rest of the world. And uh, unfortunately, we, like you said, being an empire, we have our own hubris about this where I think sometimes we don't respect that. So. Yeah. Okay. So one last question, and then we'll probably wrap up because we've we've gone a bit over time. But you know, one thing is, that struck me, and I've written about before, is that there, there, there's almost nothing in in the sort of Western political worldview that has some sort of generative vision for the future, right? Mm. Like, and, or, and there might be two, or there's not even there's not even factions that have 
kind of a cohesive platform. I mean, I guess the new right might be one of them, but I, I, I mm. basically say that it's it's either wokeism of some form or another along some dimension or Trumpism slash new rightness. Like those are the only philosophies that have anything that's not kind of a rehash of the past. And I'm wondering, I mean, do you agree with that? And if so, what, where does it lead? Or do you disagree with that? Or like, what is, I, I'm, you know, this is like ridiculous and cliche, but asking you to project a little bit into the future, like, I don't know, what is it? Yeah. Like, what are we all heading towards? What does it look like 10, 15 years from now? Like what, what, yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I, I think trying to break the future is usually like a fool's errand. Like, you know, CIA did not see the Berlin Wall falling. Uh, most people didn't see the civil rights movement uh, taking off the way that it did. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it does feel like a fool's ear. And that being said, I think something that you touched on is very, really key here, which is that it doesn't seem like people are laying out a generative vision for the future, right? Like it's very difficult to see from the vantage point right. of current social and political movements, cultural trends, politicians, governments. It's very difficult for, for to see, at least in the United States, where they think they're going or what they're trying to deliver for the people in terms of a future or what's on the horizon. Right. It's interesting that it almost feels like it almost feels like you can get more of a vision of that. If you look at like China or India and what their leadership is doing, you can almost get more of a sense of like what they're trying to accomplish over there than what we see over here. Because I think so much of what's happening here is really just based on defeating the other side. Right. It's like identifying some villains or enemies in the story and like, our goal is just to like completely defeat them over and over and over and just stop all the bad things we think they're doing without necessarily putting out this positive and affirming vision of the future. And I really do think that's something that's missing in the, in the spectrum in the U.S. And something that we need to have more people step forward and like seriously offer and put out there and do. Because I do think that a rich country like the United States, one of the, it's, you know, it's, basically the richest country in the world overall in terms of the the gdp and in terms of the, the economic growth that we experience i do think that a country like this shouldn't like commit national suicide um by giving up on things uh, by giving up on the future right but just deciding that all that we have motivating us right now is hating somebody else all that we have motivating us right now is figuring out that someone else who happens to think differently, which means the neurons are firing a little bit differently in their brain, that means that person's evil. And you know, you gotta go out and ruin their day. And that's just that's that's the summary of, of our of our vision for the future. I think that we can still be the country that put a man on the moon. We can still be a country that let's remember, we all thought we would still be waiting for a vaccination for COVID nineteen right now. We produced that vaccine in record time. You know, partly through a massive government investment and partly through ingenuity from the private sector, and they worked. They actually worked together very well. Produced the vaccination, saved countless lives, and you know, I think really transformed the world in a really positive way. We have to start thinking about doing more things like that, and we have, to, you know, and it, it 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 can't be difficult to like you know work with people who we feel disgusted by or to actually pass up on engaging in some kind of incendiary argument with someone else or being part of some kind of uh, debate or conflict that, that we feel like will vanquish someone who we find undesirable, right? But I think that impulse is what leads to conflicts like what we see in the Middle East and what, is what leads to sectarianism and division and breaking down people into component parts that we see as irreconcilable. I think having those big kind of national desires and dreams that you just described is what drives a successful society. And I really hope that going into the next uh, you know, decade or so, 
we start seeing a lot more of that and we see a rise. And I think really we need leaders who really emphasize that. Unfortunately, I think that we haven't, we haven't seen those people. Um, but I think there is like an actual normie majority, you know, if I guess silent majority, it's like a normie majority of people who like just, you know, they like to get along. They like to go out and grill on the weekends. They like, you know, they're not addicted to social media. They're, they don't, they don't use it as much as you and I do. They actually do want to see that. Like it's out there, right? It's just a matter of someone figuring out how to get it, how, how to produce it. What, what should it be? And how, how do we get that out to people? And I think people will be receptive to it. Look at this. I mean, this is the immigrants' optimism about the United States. You never find anyone more bullish. In fact, there was a Pew Research study that showed that Hispanics are actually the most optimistic and positive about America as a country <laughs> compared to anybody else. Like 83%, I forget what the number was, had a positive impression in the United States and felt that the future would be better for them than it was, that it'd be better for the children than it was for them. And so um, maybe that's a good positive note to end on saying. Um, yeah. Thanks for um, thanks for wrapping with me. I think we had an interesting conversation. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you're 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 as sort of unpindownable as as your writing record seems to seems to indicate. Um, although mm. I'm, I'm sure people will continue trying to bucketize you into into one of the warring factions. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes life simple. I was telling some people I know that that's my theory about conspiracy theories. The reason that they're attractive is because they make things much simpler, right? Like I I don't have a coherent theory as to why the factors came together that like resulted in the invasion of Iraq. Right. But if someone just has a theory of like, Oh, they just did it to make Dick Cheney rich. Like, Oh, that's pretty simple. That kind of makes sense. Like, you know, like I think that's where conspiracy theories come from. And I think that's where a lot of political debate falls is that if someone can just say, you know, this guy is a a staunch right winger or they can say, Oh, he's just this crazy left wing lunatic. It's very, it makes it, it makes the world a lot simpler and it makes your brain work less hard. And, you know, I understand why people do it, but I, I just don't think the world's that simple sometimes. So. Indeed, it's not. Well, thank you, Zaid. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us. And as usual, I will edit this and post it so people can listen to it later. And uh, thanks again for joining us, Zaid. And, um, you know, on to the next show sometime next week. You know, I should probably actually start publishing a schedule. Because uh, I, I do have one of, of speakers that are coming up. But um, in any case, uh, just to give a teaser, we've got uh, Ryan Holiday coming up. Uh, we've got Balaji Srinivasan coming up and uh, a couple other people. So that, that should be interesting. And uh, so anyhow, thanks again, Zaid. And uh, good night, everyone. Thanks.